Oh, I got a wife. It's really funny to have a wife because we was in love, man, like a bitch till we got married. <laughs> but it was cool, man. No, it was really fun. And shit. You know, we had little funny things we should do together. It was really fun. Yeah. 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 I used to bring her a rock. She'd go, oh, a rock. <laughs> a rock for me? Like, I bring that bitch a rock now, she hit me with it. <laughs> From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and at this point she can just kiss the baby, is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On this week's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Sidney Poitier's Stir Crazy from 1980, starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. So Nakia, I have not seen this movie since I was a teenager. Okay. And though I remember thinking it was funny then, to be honest, I barely remember it. <laughs> that seems to be a trend lately. Yeah. So, I wanted to put it on our list for the simple reason that you have never seen a Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movie, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then it came up now because we are trying to watch, you know, black adjacent movies, at least. (laughs) Is that what we're calling it? During Black History Month. (laughs) I mean, it could be sort of a dubious choice for that. Unlike Poitier's Uptown Saturday Night, which I think is an authentically black Mm -hmm. movie, Mm -hmm. this is a major studio production. Um, It was the studio capitalizing on the somewhat surprise success of Wilder and Pryor's chemistry in 1976's Silver Streak. And I think both of those films are remembered fondly by my generation. I'm not sure either of them is actually a comedic masterpiece of any kind. But as I was going back and doing a little research on this, I realized that Stir Crazy is a major cinematic landmark in other ways. The third highest grossing film of 1980, it was the first film by a black director to gross over $100 million. Wow. At the time, the highest grossing film ever by a black director. Hmm. And adjusted for inflation, Stir Crazy held that title until last year when Ryan Coogler's Black Panther finally beat it. That's ridiculous. Right? Wow. Okay, so how have you how have you never seen a, a Wilder Pryor movie? Um, I don't know. I don't I that was just one of those blips that just, just you know, missed the radar. Just, just a blank spot yeah, just, in your Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean I've seen plenty of Pryor, but I have not seen I mean, there aren't, this is, it's, it's one of those weird phenomenon where they are remembered as this great comic duo. But they didn't do a whole lot They together. didn't do very many yeah. movies together. They did four movies. And really, the first two are the only ones that are remotely good, mm-hmm. which is Silver Streak and Star Crazy. Mm-hmm. Then years went by, they didn't do anything together. Then in 1989, they did See No Evil, Hear No Evil. And in 1991, they did Another You, which I think was the last major movie for either of them. Neither of those movies did anything commercially, Mm -hmm. and they were pretty much panned Mm -hmm. critically. So we're really talking about two movies here. Okay. It should have been more movies. Blazing Saddles was written for Richard Pryor. Really? Yes. And Pryor, who... He struggled with cocaine addiction. Struggled with cocaine addiction. Yes. The studio would not insure him mm. to make that movie, mm-hmm. which is how Cleavon Little... And Cleavon Little was great, he was great in that yeah. movie. But that should have been the first Wilder-Pryor collaboration. 
Um, the next movie Poitier directed after this was a film called Hanky Panky that was originally conceived, at least, as another Wilder Pryor movie and then completely retooled and Gilda Radner, mm. whatever that role was, <laughs> became Gilda Radner, which was fortuitous for Wilder and Radner because they, they fell married. in love and had one of the great Hollywood romances. Yeah. This I had not known until I looked into this. Trading Places was going to be a Wilder Pryor movie. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. But again, the the famous Richard Pryor freebasing, setting himself on, on fire, fire incident happened during or just after the filming of Star Crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was the career went a little off the rails yeah. at that point. Yeah. But let's talk about, you said you've seen a lot of other Richard Pryor movies. What have you, What's your experience with Richard Pryor? Um, so I've seen him, you know, in a number of things. He's in Lady Sings the Blues. He's in Car- He's very good in Lady Sings the Blues, actually. He's very good in Lady Sings the Blues. Um, he's in Car Wash. He's in The Wiz. Um, <laughs> oh, I forgot he was in The Wiz. <laughs> he's, he's the, the fucking Wiz. Harlem Nights. Harlem Nights, I know, I is one of your favorites. Deeply, deeply love. Yeah. Um, and then, unfortunately, The Toy. Uh, that's an abomination it's a, it's of a movie. It's just a terrible film, and it was a bad idea, and whoever conceived of it should just have to atone forever. And then I've seen a few SNL clips, but yeah, so. Like the Chevy Chase, the famous right, Chevy the Chase famous sketch. Chevy Chase sketch. Right. I mean, prior, let's talk about Richard Pryor. Okay. I mean, I think his film career was never what it should have been mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. including his drug use. Yeah. That's a theme that keeps coming up. But also, I think it's just the nature of being Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. that he was always going to be a square peg in every round hole yeah. that he was plugged into. Yeah. Born in Peoria, Illinois, just down the road from us here. As he discussed in his comedy routines, very frankly, he was the son of a prostitute and a pimp. He grew up in a whorehouse run by his grandmother. He was abandoned by both his parents. He was physically and sexually abused. He was starting off with a lot of shit that yeah. then became the basis for... A brilliant career. A brilliant comedy career. Yeah. Uh, He started performing during a stint in the Army in the late 1950s. He was eventually kicked out of the Army for fighting. And he started performing as a comedian on the circuits in New York and Las Vegas. Early 60s, he started appearing on television on shows like Ed Sullivan, Merv Griffin, and The Johnny Carson Show. But he was doing, at that time, a much tamer act Mm -hmm. than he would later become famous for. When he started out, it was much more traditional set-up punchline and a Youngman-type humor. He then sort of evolved towards a more folksy humor like Bill Cosby was doing, but still tame and still accessible. And in a a Rolling Stone interview I found from 1974, he talked about how other agents and comedians counseled him to keep his act there, to keep it accessible, to keep it friendly to white people. He remembered one comedian and writer telling him, the kind of colored guy we'd like to have over to our house, it's more Bill Cosby. Don't mention the fact that you're a N-word. Don't go into such bad taste. And Pryor said, they were going to try to help me be nothing as best they could. Mm -hmm. And he said, I made four or $500,000 being like they said, and then I went crazy one day. Um, And he always said, he said the turning point came one night when he was playing in Las Vegas, the Aladdin or the Sands or somewhere where he was headlining and he looked out at the crowd and he saw this sea of white faces. Um, he said he remembers seeing Dean Martin sitting there looking up at him and just asked himself, like, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah. He said he was asking himself, like, who are they looking at? And he couldn't answer that question. He said he realized that his grandmother would have no place in that room, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he went away. He literally walked off stage and 
it, it reminded me, you talk about the legacy and sort of, I mean, I think if he has a successor. Dave Chappelle. It's Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And Dave Chappelle had that moment, too, where yeah. he just walked away from his TV show and mm-hmm. said, I got to go rethink this shit. And when he came back, his act had changed. How would you describe Pryor's <laughs> act? There's, there's, there had been nothing like it before, and there's been nothing like there it really since. There really hasn't. I mean, Pryor was, it was a tightrope walk with Pryor. It was a very sophisticated balance between abject tragedy and uproarious, ridiculous humor. He was sort of able to mine from his own life, you know, all these really just horrible things and make them funny. But never, he never felt like a victim. It never felt, it was just, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful vulnerability. And, deeply and it was incisive. not jokes. It wasn't jokes. It was just storytelling, really. It was just sort of, and, and just so smart and incisive and unapologetic. Yes. Um, and it really was like, this is who I am. You can take it or you can leave it. It's all going to be out there. I'm going to talk about the fact that I do cocaine. I'm going to talk about, you know, the fact that I was an abusive husband. I'm going to yeah. talk about all, you know, it's, I'm putting it all out there. about sex with white women. Right. Which I mean, made you know, people very uncomfortable. Burning myself up with a crack pipe. Like, I'm talking yep. about all of Nothing is off the table. <laughs> I remember, and I think I was an adult before I actually listened to the comedy albums, mm-hmm. and I knew him from the movies. Mm-hmm. I knew him from Star Crazy and Silver Streak and shit like The Toy and Superman 3, <laughs> which he never should have been in. And, I mean, the albums are a revelation, they are and they are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there listening to him being like, I'm not sure I like this. <laughs> it, it's disorienting. Mm-hmm. I mean, he... It's all these meandering stories. They are deeply rooted in blackness. So, mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the things about him is that it was not filtered no. for the white gaze no. at all. Hilton Al's writing about Pryor in The New Yorker, a really good piece I'll link to in the show notes, said, Blackness had almost always had to explain itself to a largely white audience in order to be heard. And it has generally been assumed to have only one story to tell, a story of oppression that plays on liberal guilt. Richard Pryor was the first black American spoken word artist to avoid this. Instead of adapting to the white perspective, he forced white audiences to follow him into his own experience. And I think that's true. I think he, it, it was this very honest, very raw, unvarnished experience. Mm-hmm. And frankly, he didn't seem to give a fuck whether you liked him or not. No, no. He was, you know, that, that what they say about, you know, he was a comics comic. And it was just, it was about the craft and it was about the art. And that was really it. Al's also writes, before Richard Pryor, there were only three aspects of black maleness to be found on TV or in the movies. The suave, pimp-style blandness of Billy Dee Williams, the big-dicked, quiet machismo (laughs) of the football hero Jim Brown, and the cable-knit homilies of Bill Cosby. Pryor was the first image we'd ever had of black male fear. Hmm. Pryor was filled with dread and panic and existential fear based on real things like racism and lost love. I mean, yeah, there there was just a vulnerability to him... That I don't think that we'd seen before, and I'm not sure that we've seen since from comics. Um, sort of everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of comics can do that sort of, oh, I'm going to, you know, sort of make fun of my own life or sort right. of put my own sort of foibles up for display and, 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 and pick them apart. But there really, there was a palpable sort of existentialism to what Pryor did. That again, that balance of like being very, very funny and also sort of heartbreaking at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very special thing to be able to do. And you see it so rarely, in my opinion, with artists sort of across the board. So one of my favorite singers, like, ever is Donny Hathaway. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I love him so, so deeply is because with one note, I can be elated and crying at the same time. Like he just, it, there was just, there was so much there and he, he suffered with schizophrenia and it was just, and so I think there are just those people that are sort of born with that ability, this ability to sort of fill you up and also break your heart at the same time. It's, it's, it is, it is a gift. And I think it is a particular gift when we see a black man on a national stage being that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that unapologetic about that vulnerability. And I don't know that his film career ever really captured that Mm -hmm. as well as it should have. Mm -hmm. Um, There's at least one good concert film. There's some very interesting, very personal films like uh, Jojo Dancer. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that? I didn't see that. That's his sort of semi-autobiographical retelling of his own life. Okay. It's it's a flawed film, but it's a really interesting film. Hmm. And then I do think these these more mainstream movies he was in, I think a lot of the humor comes almost from the tension of him being there because he does seem unpredictable. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of improvisation. I mean, I think he and Gene Wilder actually did not particularly get along. Oh. They were not. I mean, they liked each other. They respected each other. But Gene Wilder was like, we didn't hang out mm. because Richard Pryor's lifestyle was <laughs> completely different from my lifestyle. Yeah, you're signing up for some shit there. Right. They just they just happen to have really good on-screen chemistry together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Wilder talks about that how Richard Pryor would improvise mm-hmm. and just take it in a completely different direction. And he's pushing him to keep up with that. And for some reason, they just played off each other really well in that way. Yeah. But Pryor was a pain in the ass, too. And Pryor was late to set, would just disappear from set for long times. He was constantly high. He was, there's a 15-minute tape. You can find it on YouTube of him giving an interview on the set of Stir Crazy. Mm -hmm. He is coked out of his head. He's rambling. He's insulting the movie. He's insulting Wilder. He's just being profane. It's painful to watch, but it's also very unfiltered. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's having fun with being a dick. He's just like, you know, the interviewer is trying to ask him about the movie, the movie he's making and theoretically promoting. Right. And he's like, what do you want to know? It sucks. (laughs) And he's like, you know, Gene Wilder's a F word and Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. And that happened a lot. I mean, he was, I read about Lily Tomlin invited, they were good friends, invited him to take part in this. It was a gay rights Mm -hmm. rally Mm -hmm. um, protesting some Anita Bryant proposition that was on the bill in California. But they, because of the climate of the time, they didn't call it a gay rights rally. They called it a human rights rally. Mm -hmm. And she invited Pryor to come speak to this. And there's a famous incident where he basically had a meltdown on stage. He started out winning the crowd over. He talked about his own homosexual experiences and stuff in a way that nobody else would have talked about so openly on stage. But then at some point, his constant use of the F word did not go over (laughs) with the crowd. (laughs) And then he turned against them in a way that was, this is the line that I think he always walked. It was somewhat obnoxious, but it was also somewhat right. Mm -hmm. You, You know, where he started getting into intersectionality and talking about how when we were burning down Watts, you guys were on Hollywood Boulevard sucking dicks basically he was saying um where were you for us Mm -hmm. and said uh, you know i i was invited to a human rights rally this isn't a human rights rally you don't care about that Mm. and it was just this whole thing where he just you know made thousands and thousands of people super uncomfortable which was one of his (laughs) gifts i think and he was undoubtedly always brilliant and always funny yes to me, it makes an interesting contrast. Last week, we talked about Sidney Poitier mm-hmm. having what some people thought was too safe a career. Yeah. 
who, you know, who was always elegant and poised and in control. And he, he was criticized for being too accommodating mm-hmm. of the white gaze. Mm-hmm. And then this week we have Poitier directing this movie with Richard Pryor, who had the other kind of career. <laughs> who made a different choice. For a black celebrity and <laughs> and suffered for that and did not, did. I think, have the success that he should have had out of that. I mean, Pryor just complicated things. Like, that was just, that was part of his brilliance was that it wasn't, it was never going to be easy with Pryor for a num- on a number of different levels. But he forced sort of friction. Like, that was just sort of what he did. And he wasn't necessarily looking to be accepted. I think he did make a very conscious decision of, like, I'm not going to be Bill Cosby. And so what mm-hmm. does that mean? It looks like, it looks like a Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you said you were looking forward to this film. So what are you... What are you expecting from from Stir Crazy? Um, I'm expecting it to be funny, if nothing else. <laughs> so I'm a, I like Gene Wilder. I like Richard Pryor. So there are at least I'm walking in liking the stars, which is rare for our little experiment. <laughs> um, and I'm interested to see Poitiers as a director. I don't think I've ever seen any of his films. So oh, you haven't seen uh, Uptown Saturday Night? Oh yeah, no, I have seen that. Okay, I do I like that. It's like the one time you know Cosby isn't doing the Bill Cosby thing. So <laughs> yeah. I think they made like two or three of those movies. I think Up Ten Saturday Night's the only one I've seen, but I think there's two or three or even four of those oh, Buddy God. and Cosby. It's possible. Buddy pictures. Yeah. I just saw the one, so. <laughs> um, he also directed Bill Cosby's Ghost Dad, so I think we I have saw to Ghost Dad. We'd have to judge Buddy oh, a little wow. bit for that. I did see Ghost Dad. <laughs> that was not a good film. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was late in Poitier's directing career. That just still shouldn't have been. Again, like just on paper, bad idea. Don't do that. Do not do it. I, I think, I feel confident that this one is going to be better than Ghost Dad. Okay. Let's, let's say that. Okay. Will the defendants rise? I hereby sentence you to serve 125 years in the custody of the commissioner. Have you got the right case? They did it to you before. Now they're going to do it to you again. I should have my hand over hall for listening to you. Nice Grossberger. The biggest mass murder in the history of the Southwest. Nobody has ever just sat down and honestly talked with that man. Skip, the man is not ready for an interview. Hello. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor are ready to drive you stir crazy. Give me a light. Oh, a light. Oh. They're the world's most hilarious comedy team, doing what they do best. Man, I'm not a troublemaker. Skip. Skip. Okay. No more hitting. Did you hear what I just said? Skip. Skip. No more hitting. Skip. Oh, carry me back to old Virginia. I can't feel nothing in my leg. They got this Korean doctor just set foot in this country. Make sure you don't get him. He's the one made the mistake on me. How do you go? Could you actually become involved? I mean, romantically? With a prisoner? Absolutely not. What you want, We're innocent, man. I swear we are. Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor. That's right. That's right. We're back. In Stir Crazy. They're wanted everywhere, 
for less. And we're back. During the break, Nikia and I watched Stir Crazy. Nikia, you know better than anyone that I am willing to forgive a lot in the name of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. That I can find something funny at the ripe old age of 40 that I am now just because I remember finding it funny when I was 12 years old. Yes. That did not work so much mm. for me with this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of not good. <laughs> Are you allowed to say that about a prior Wilder You know, I don't, I, I don't like saying that, mm -hmm. but... As I was sitting there watching this movie, I was thinking, if this were a new movie mm. with, I don't you know, Will Ferrell and Kevin, Kevin Hart. Hart. How did, yeah. Right? Yeah. I would say, this thing is a piece of shit. <laughs> I don't understand why it is the biggest money-making comedy by a black director as this is of all time for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, well, I think this book speaks more to just lack of access and person and, and uh, opportunity than it does. No, 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 it absolutely does. Anything yes. Else. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, that is what that's about. But still, this was a hugely successful film. Yes. And it really doesn't deserve to be. No, I was I was disappointed. Um yeah. That here's what I think that there are that this film the thing that this film does it gives space for Wilder and Pryor to sort of do their thing mm -hmm. to a certain extent that doesn't happen often. Yes, and the last half of the movie <laughs> isn't really funny at all and gets sort of bogged down in this prison escape storyline and just loses whatever momentum it had built up at the at the top half. You just wrote Roger Ebert's review. All right. That's basically exactly what he said. He said it started off strong and then seemed to change its mind halfway through about the kind of movie it wanted to be. He said it lost its way once all the rodeo stuff and the prison break stuff happened. He talked about how the rodeo sequences were boring. The escape stuff was repetitive. We see the same yeah. escape route, you know, four or five guys go through the tunnel. Yeah, it's just, it's a weird structure. Yeah. And then the other thing, Ebert, and we'll come back to that because I have a theory that is in line with your comments. But the other thing Ebert talked about was he said, either Poitier or the producers made a tactical error in making Wilder the more aggressive character mm. and Pryor the laid back one. This is casting against tight. Wilder is brilliant at being meek and laid back and Pryor is a genius when he's allowed to be hyper. But it doesn't feel right when Wilder goes for the high notes and Pryor hangs back. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see. I mean, I um, I really liked Gene Wilder in uh, Blazing Saddles. Mm -hmm. And he's very much like, he's f hilarious in it, but he's very calm and it's a, it's, it's a quiet sort of energy around him. Yeah. And we are used to Pryor being the more sort of manic presence in films. Like, you can totally see how Blazing Saddles would have worked right, with Pryor with, with Pryor. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I wouldn't say that Wilder would need to be, that they would sort of need to s switch personas. I think that they could have both been manic. And there are moments in this film where they are both sort of working at 10. Mm -hmm. But Pryor definitely seems muted in this film um, for most of it. Well, so this this is my theory, and it, and it comes back to what you were saying about 
it was exactly the same thought I had where you said the movie creates opportunities to be funny. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened with this movie is that they they didn't worry that much about the script yeah. because Pryor especially was known for improvising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the thing with him and Wilder from Silver Streak was that they were good doing that together. Mm -hmm. And I think they went into this saying, hey, if we create these situations, funny stuff They'll is going to happen. Work, yeah. And it didn't happen. And I think probably a lot of that was because of where Pryor was. Mm. I mean, we already talked about he was a huge problem. He was yeah. high all the time. He was showing up late. He was, his head was not in the game. Yeah. And I think that stuff just didn't happen the way they were expecting it to. Um, I don't know that. I haven't read anyone who said that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's watching that it's, you you keep getting these set pieces where it's like, okay, something funny should happen here. Yeah. And then it just doesn't quite come together. Yeah. There's a lot of places throughout the film where instead of jokes, like where we would expect funny dialogue, you just get them making these noises. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh -huh. It happens a few times. It's while they're in the courtroom, once the sentence comes down, just starts going, wah, wah. And then when they put Grossberger, the giant in the, thug, in yeah, the cell with cell them, them, there's like three minutes of prior just whimpering. Mm -hmm. And there's no lines. No. It's just... And I think you in that scene, you can even see Wilder sort of standing away, waiting for Pryor to do something funny mm -hmm. that is going to come out of that. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it was this whole thing was kind of disappointing. It was it was a little bit disappointing. I mean, I think you have the classic scene when they are sort of first arrested and they're in basically the county jail. Yeah. You know, waiting for their lawyer where, you know, everybody knows that scene where um, <laughs> Pryor starts to sort of imitate what he thinks is toughness <laughs> yeah. in jail, right? And is like, that's, that's right. right. We bad, we bad, sort of thing. And that's, it's a classic and scene. And that is the, that is the iconic scene. And it's that's funny. all I remembered from this movie, really. That's what got repeated. And that little, that whole, that sort of little vignette is actually quite funny and how they interact with the other prisoners in the jail. Uh -huh. um, you know, there are two sort of toughs in the, in the cell with them and there's some sort of interaction and Pryor says something like, take me back to old Virginia or something like just <laughs> Very lowly under his breath of just yeah. like doing that prior thing where he's like, I'm freak I'm scared and I'm freaking yes. out and I'm just gonna yeah. um, spaz out a little bit under my breath. Um <laughs> And then there's a, a great little sort of moment of physical comedy where he's trying to light a match and he can't yes. quite light it. And so that, so. And I think, the, the, guy, the huge guy is steady there being like, you're a short son of a bitch, aren't you? And he's right. like, he's like I, I, am a, I am a short son of a bitch. My mama was a short, son, was of a short bitch. son of a bitch. <laughs> so, and it's a, it's a wonderful little moment in the film. And so there are a couple of those. But otherwise, there's just, it's just weirdness. There's, I mean, not long after that, when Pryor and Wilder are taken to, I guess it's like federal prison. Right. I guess Wilder, who has been up until this point fairly sort of optimistic and glass half full about the whole situation and not really taking in the reality of their situation. Right. He, he's a writer, so he's approaching right. this as an interesting thing that's happening no, it's to him. An experience. He's almost narrating right. at it, one point. And but it, there's a point where they sort of get into the prison and he sees the cells and, and, and the inmates and it's sort of the realization of his situation sort of sets in and he just goes on this spaz moment where again he's sort of just making noises and Yeah, he's just freaking out. Being really manic and at one point he like slaps the baton out of the officer's hand mm -hmm. and then jumps on the officer's back and like tries to ride him like a horse and mm -hmm. it's a weird little section and then they calm him down and then prior basically repeats Does what he, right 
what what Wilder had just done. And so it's and neither of them are particularly funny. No, I mean it's definitely diminishing returns after a certain point. That sort of supermanic freakout. They rely on that a little bit too much in this film, and it just sort of loses steam. Again, it just it just feels to me like them trying to find something yeah. funny and just not quite finding yeah. it. I did think, in terms of the the racial relationships between these two characters, mm-hmm. I like how, I mean, yes, it is a little weird to see Pryor as the laid back one, mm-hmm. but it also, in this context, I liked his restraint compared to Wilder's naivete. Yeah. Wilder is, it's like this bubble of white privilege right. where he, he thinks he can attack the guards and argue with the guards and, you know, go into the warden's office with a list of demands and go approach Grossberger and make friends with Grossberger. Right. And Pryor's just like, man, you're going to get us. Yeah, yeah, let's not do that. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I I don't know. So let's, do you want to go through this movie? You want to just talk about certain situations, characters? Let's start with the two leads. (laughs) Okay. Because, I mean, even though this movie is not, to me, a tremendous success, these are two legends. Yes, they are. Yeah, unfortunately, like, this film didn't leave me with a whole lot to say about either of them. I know both of them in better things. Right. So, again, like I mentioned, like, I think that this movie allows them sort of moments to shine. But for the most part, I don't know that it's worthy of either of them um, or the best use of either of their gifts. And, I mean, Wilder seems like weirdly like his Willy Wonka character that hasn't sort of fully grown into itself yet. (laughs) It's sort of odd. And then prior, again, it just feels, I don't know, it, do, it feels a little muted. It feels, mm-hmm. or, or at least um, intermittent. Like, you, you, there are these sort of flashes of brilliance and you go, ah, oh, there he is. There's right, prior. Right. And then he goes away for like 20 minutes and you sort of, and you miss him. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that this film served either of them particularly well. And I mean, the plot, so much as there is one, is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Pryor and Wilder are both sort of artists living in New York City. Uh, Wilder is a playwright and Pryor is an actor, and they both get fired on the same day. Right. Um, Pryor is serving as a waiter at some fancy dinner party. And they accidentally put his stash of weed in, like, the soup or something. <laughs> and it's it's weird because the weed is, like, stored in this sort of lorry season salt sort of container, <laughs> and I just don't, like, and I am not... An expert on weed storage. You so are not a weed know. storage I'm, connoisseur. I'm no, yeah, I don't know if that is common, um, but it just seemed like a weird way to keep weed. I, I mean, know. it seems like a good way. It's a nice but, airtight container. I don't. I mean, but you know, a, a, zip, a Ziploc baggie can sure. open. You know, get but it, it also let air in. leaves it. You know, up for people grabbing it during cooking. Apparently, and mistaking it for, it for oregano. oregano. So that's. I would say that that's you know irresponsible storage. Um, and then Wilder is fired after he basically harasses a woman in a department store. He's security and he's accusing her of stealing a dress at the same time complimenting her acting skills because she's an actress. It's a weird, it's Yeah, weird. it's a little odd. So anyway, Wilder decides, you know, New York sucks and we need to get out of here. And uh, Hollywood is, you know, where we as artists need to be. And it's the place of opportunity and sun and women in the sun. And so they sort of cook up this plan to go west. Mm-hmm. And they end up. Their little broken down van runs out of steam, and I think they're in Arizona. Yeah. And so in order to make a little money, they take a random ass job as <laughs> woodpeckers. Woodpecker costumes. Uh, like As like mascots of a bank or something, and they do like a little wood 
pecker dance. Yeah, I didn't I didn't understand that because they're like singing a little promotional jingle for the bank in the bank yeah. to the customers who are already in line at the bank. I mean, what are you trying? They, that's a level of these are already yeah, bank customers. That's a level of logic that I don't know why you're even trying to go there. Um, so anyway, they go on their lunch break. They put their woodpecker costumes to the mm-hmm. side, and two dudes coincidentally grab their woodpecker costumes and go rob the bank. It's a brilliant crime. Perfect frame. Sure. It's weird. Um, Like, where were the costumes if these dudes were able to just go grab them and then go rob the bank? I don't know. Anyway, so they are framed for the bank robbery. We never really find out who those dudes are. I think it's the same two dudes they meet at that bar. I couldn't even tell, because they they did have an encounter with two dudes in a And the tattoo is the same. Right, and the tattoo... Okay, so that was the same two dudes. Right, which is, again, there's no conversation about (laughs) why that makes sense or why that happened. Right. Or, like, how those two dudes then knew that they were going to be working at the bank. It doesn't make any sense. So, they're framed for the bank robbery, sentenced to 125 years <laughs> in prison. Briar says, I'm going to be 162 or yeah. something when I get out. And they go to jail. And, you know, this, typical jail hijinks ensue. This this was shot at a real prison in Arizona using real inmates. Something like 350 real inmates were used as extras. Mm-hmm. They were paid like, you know, $40 a day or something. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, Pryor, probably mouthing off, offended them and then was in fear for his life the entire time they were there. Not surprised. One of the, one of the actors, I think it's the guy that plays Blade, mm-hmm. said he got pulled into the line with the inmates once by the guards. Oh, God. <laughs> because they, like when the crew was leaving. Yeah. It's like, you can come over here up against the wall. Yeah, no. <laughs> And, wear like a vest and then just like apologize to him afterwards. Like, I could have sworn you were one of our guys. Because you're Latino. <laughs> and so we assumed you were a prison. Really? He, he took it as a compliment to his acting, mm-hmm. I guess. That mm-hmm. was, yes. Yeah. So they collect a little tribe of um, Benetton jail comrades. There's the Latino <laughs> gentleman. There is a gay black guy. And then prior. A little swishy as gay characters tend to be. I mean, be. he's a terribly stereotypical gay character. It's a, and it's a tired ass character for any sort of prison milieu. It's just mm-hmm. like, it's that dude. And it's like, okay, really? Um, it's basically the same guy that was on the plane in Con Air. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the joke is homophobia. Right. Like, that's the joke. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just like, it's not good. So they uh, end up hatching a plan. Well, well, weirdly, this jail participates in some <laughs> the sort first of, of several weird plot elements. Weird jail intramural <laughs> rodeo, rodeo competition for money. Because um, that's, I assume that's what happens. Well, I, I mean, you know, Shawshank, they, he was doing taxes. So, <laughs> and so the w- warden has a mechanical bull in his office to pull tryouts mm-hmm. of new <laughs> recruits, let's uh-huh. call them. And Wilder is preternaturally good at riding a mechanical bull and he is, you know, uh, conscripted to the warden's bull riding yeah. team. Now the warden, no, it's, it is very Andy Dufresne. It's it like is, the warden now owns yes, this guy and needs him. He is Dufresne. So they realize that the rodeo will give them sort of access to escape. So they pull together their little ragtag team and, you know, go about doing this rodeo. (laughs) And then we're at the rodeo for like 
20 minutes and it's nothing is... It's a long is, time at the rodeo. It's not funny and nothing... Like, we're just literally sitting and watching a rodeo, which I don't watch rodeos in my real life, so I don't <laughs> want to sit and watch it in a film with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Like, it does seem like there is just so much opportunity for slapstick yeah. and humor and stuff, and it just doesn't... No, they don't do... There's nothing ...come together there. You just get a weird body double switch with Wilder. Yeah, that was a bad... I mean, maybe, so, you know, we've got HD TV. Yeah, maybe so we could probably see it. on film yeah. it wasn't quite as obvious that that was not... Not Gene Wilder. Yeah. But yeah, so then it's, uh, again, an extended visit at this rodeo, and then an extended uh, escape scenario, and... Which just comes... I mean, again, you're okay, never... It, what? You, well, you say I shouldn't worry about logic. Because... Uh, what, like, I don't know how this plan came together for the escape. I mean, I guess they... Like, how did they know... Because we see them making all the tools right. they're going to need for this. But how did they know all the tools they were going to need? Like, it just... Added, well, the, we never see the planning portion. One of the prisoners had been a part of the rodeo thing before, I think, so he yeah. probably knew sort of the layout. Yeah. Or I don't. I have again. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Um, so they end up all escaping, and then at the end, their lawyer and his niece. What was she? <laughs> his cousin. His cousin. This is Joe Beth Williams. Weirdly, also or, working on their case, or as you referred to her, Carol Ann's mom. Carol Ann's mom. So they've escaped and they're driving and, you know, in a getaway car. And so their lawyer and Carol Ann's mom catches up with them and they're like, well, actually, you know, we found enough evidence and you, um, you're free. You've been exonerated. But they've also broken out of prison. <laughs> yeah, so that, doesn't, would, that doesn't seem to matter. I would think that, that might be a little bit of a problem, but apparently not. So then they yeah, all... That, do, wait, so that character, Joe Beth Williams, is such a weirdly shoehorned in yeah. love interest for Gene Wilder. Yeah. She basically, she's not even his lawyer. She's his lawyer's cousin. Right. And what appears to happen is, okay, so they know they've had a witness in the bank that said, well, the real bank robber had a tattoo on his hand. Right. So she has apparently gone to work for months in this strip club where people with tattoos go mm-hmm. and she's just been watching for this tattoo like i don't i don't know if she had another job or another life or anything before this but she has dedicated her life now to going undercover in this strip club bar yes to look for a specific tattoo yes and it works out she ends up <laughs> finding them amazingly <laughs> And it, and it works out because it gives the film an opportunity to show us some 80s gratuitous boobs. 80s boobs. Yeah. Like, oh, we got a prison. It's all men. How are we going to get some naked boobs in here? Yeah. They found a way. Yes, they did. Well done, Sidney Poitier. Yeah. <laughs> so it was basically a movie about, like, convict leasing or something, but it just wasn't, it, yeah. It's a movie about the prison industrial sure. complex and the profit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And actually, uh, you're making fun of the rodeo. In fact, the real warden of the real prison in which they shot this had, ironically, always wanted to have a prison rodeo. Of course he did. And used the money that they got for shooting this movie there mm-hmm. to build a real prison rodeo yeah, stadium. That's so, a problem. Art imitates life yeah. imitating art. That's a super problem. <laughs> It's basically like, you know, fight club in prison. Like, it's just like, maybe don't do that to prisoners. So, okay. So speaking of Poitier, there were a couple of nice moments, I thought, in the film. 
um, that were not necessarily related to the story or the script or anything. Mm -hmm. I liked the opening montage over the credits. Of how crappy New York is? Of how crappy New York is. You get like a homeless woman blowing her nose on a t-shirt that says, I love New York and stuff like that. People fighting over cabs. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's some nice stuff there. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite moment in the film, which to me almost redeems the entire film, is Grossberger singing. It is very beautiful. It's a weirdly haunting moment. This big, giant, threatening guy who has not said a word, all he's done is grunt thus far in the film, suddenly breaks out this beautiful tenor voice. Oh, yeah. I don't know what kind of voice. I don't know voices. I don't know. He, has a, he has a nice singing it's voice. It's a wonderful little aria. He does. And it, it, you know, just reverberates through this silent prison. Yeah. And it's a weirdly haunting little moment. It is. Everything else that happens around it is not so, no. not so memorable. No. Were there any bits that you thought were actually funny? Any lines? I mean, I, I mentioned the remember? ones that I thought were sort of standout moments. Again, you know, Pryor and Wilder when they first enter the sort of county jail for holding is a funny moment. Um, but no, I, I I will go elsewhere for my Pryor. I will not be going to stir crazy for my Pryor. I, I think that's fair. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say about this one either. There's not a lot up there. No, so. it was really a disappointment. Yeah. I was expecting this to be a fonder memory for me. Sorry. Further proof that you didn't have great taste when you were young. <laughs> well, me and 100 million other people, apparently. <laughs> <sighs> All right, let's call this one early. Okay. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week when Nakia and I switch chairs and I watch a favorite movie of hers that I have never seen. And I am about to find out what that movie is <laughs> right along with you. Well, first of all, I don't like being, you know, marginalized to Black History Month. Um, <laughs> and, you know, filling in as, a, you know, the, the black correspondent for... We have done month. this two or three times before, <laughs> not during Black History Month. Uh-huh. Anyway, you know, given the occasion of Spike Lee's Best Director nomination for the 2019 Oscars, I thought we would do a Spike joint that you hadn't seen. Okay, I've seen a lot of Spike joints. I've seen a lot of Spike joints, but I don't think you've seen Crooklyn. I have not seen Crooklyn. Okay, so Crooklyn came out in 1994, and it's basically the sort of coming-of-age story of a little girl growing up in 1973, Brooklyn. And I personally love Crooklyn, and I think it's, it's one of my favorite Spike Lee films, if only because it's so rare to sort of get a story centered on a young black girl and young black girlhood in that way. So yeah, that's my that's my pick. Okay. I'm excited about this. I like most Spike Lee movies. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to this, which is why I am not the unenthusiastic critic. I, well, because I am, you know, open-minded and enthusiastic. I'm very open-minded, <laughs> but I also know when some bullshit is bullshit, so, <laughs> you know. That's the line on your gravestone. <laughs> no, no. She knew when bullshit was I gotta, bullshit. I would have to come up with a better one than that. That's not, that's not good. Well, you're not going to have any say in that. I'm going to be the one what deciding that. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can find our contact information, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support the podcast. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film that Nakia needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. <laughs>